0: Let's pray together. Father, what we need now is several things. We need strength because it's late. We've sat a long time and bodies are sleepy. And so I pray that you would come and give us wakefulness and alertness. And then more than that, and based on that, we need your Holy Spirit to come and give us spiritual receptivity and Mental quickness of mind. Father, I pray that you would put reason in its right place and you would put faith understood properly in its right place and you would make the relationship between the two biblically clear. And I pray that for any in this room for whom faith has not become a saving reality, they would be saved tonight. And I pray for those who are wobbly in their faith and are contemplating apostasy would be rescued and made stable. And I pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted. And I pray that you, Father, would be hallowed all by the Holy Spirit, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So our theme is faith and reason. And one way to understand the relationship between this message and the one you heard from Dr. Sproul is that this is the same message, only all drawn not from the contemplation of the contemporary task of apologetics, but from my meditations on the Scripture in relation to faith and reason. So, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we'll read verses 1 to 4. My outline is that we'll spend the first section on contemplating reason, and then the second on contemplating faith and its nature, and then third on how they relate to each other. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. In other words, they wanted some evidence that would help them be persuaded that he was true. He answered them When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed when I was in seminary, there was a lot of talk about the contrast between Hellenistic thinking and Hebraic thinking. And Hellenistic thinking, Greek thinking, was characterized by Aristotelian logic. And the foundation stone would be the Aristotelian syllogism. All men are mortal. Plato was a man. Therefore, Plato is mortal. And the point of the distinction between Hebraic thinking and, and Hellenistic thinking was to say that the Bible is pervasively Hebraic. and We tend to be the heirs of the Greeks, the Hellenists, sometimes described as Western thinking or linear thinking or logical thinking or Aristotelian thinking, and therefore, if you attempt to use Greek thinking, Aristotelian logic to understand the Bible, you are philosophically or culturally out of touch. You're uninformed about the necessary adjustments that need to be made. Now, I was never impressed by this distinction. I, I was, you know, 22 to 25 years old in those days, and I would read the book, and I would listen to the conversations, and it didn't really work for me. And here, a little parenthesis concerning my father, it is an awesome gift to grow up. It is an awesome philosophical gift to grow up in a Bible-saturated home because it saves you from many dead-end detours in life. You have a nose. You can smell something that won't work. And it's so sad if you have to take a generation before scholarship discovers it won't work. Well, that didn't work for me. And this text is one of the reasons why it didn't work. Jesus says to the Pharisees... "Um, a sign. You want a sign from me. You say, verse 2, when it is evening it will be fair weather for the skies red. Now, what does that mean? It means that they are Hebraic people using Aristotelian logic. This is a syllogism. Premise 1, Red skies in the evening portend fair weather. Premise two, this evening, the sky is red. Conclusion, the weather will be fair. That's pure Aristotelianism. All you have to do is be Bible-saturated to be protected against this foolishness. Verse three, in the morning... It will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Premise one, red skies in the morning, failure's warning, stormy weather. Premise two, this morning, the skies are red. Conclusion, Aristotle-like. It's going to be stormy today. And Jesus responded to this. You know how to use your brain, and it was his approval of their logical faculties that made his disapproval valid, which came in the next phrase. You know how to use your mind, and you cannot use them to discern what is staring you in the face. And when, when he says cannot, you cannot interpret the signs of the times, he doesn't mean they don't have the sensory data. They don't have eyeballs. They don't have functioning brains. That was the whole point of the story. You can do this. You have brains that work just fine to protect your skin from drowning on the sea. Why can't they use them to discern the signs of the time? It's Christ. The Messiah is here. Why can't you see this? Why don't you compute here as well as you compute there? And he gave the reason. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for another sign, more signs, exorbitant signs, but no signs will be given except the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean? How does being adulterous cause your brain to malfunction in relation to spiritual reality? That's what he's saying here. Here's the way it works. Elsewhere, Jesus said, we sang it a moment ago, he's the bridegroom. The bridegroom has come into the world for the bride, the chosen people of God. The people who thought that they were the chosen people consider this bridegroom and they do not like what they see. They do not want him to be their husband, so they are unwilling to have him. They are adulterous. They prefer other spouses. Praise of man. Pharisees are called lovers of money. They have other women in their lives that they love and are adulterous with. They don't want this bridegroom, or they have other men. They don't want this bridegroom because he doesn't fit their expectations. They don't want to marry him. That's why the Pharisees are asking for a sign. Because, consider, if this is the bridegroom, deep down you suspect he may be the bridegroom, but you don't want to have him as the bridegroom, one of the best ways to save face and reject him as your bridegroom is to say, there's not enough evidence that you're the bridegroom. And so you ask for more and more signs. Jesus knew this about their hearts. They're asking for more signs to give the impression there's not enough evidence to embrace him as the bridegroom. And therefore, he says, the reason you do so well with nature and so poorly with spiritual reality is because you're adulterous. Your hearts have gone after other bridegrooms and you don't want me So it isn't lack of evidence, it isn't lack of rational powers, it's because they are evil and adulterous. And what happens is, and Dr. Sproul made this plain, an adulterous heart disorders the mind so that it can function just fine in selfish quests, but it cannot function in spiritual it is enslaved to wrong inferences because it wants so badly another spouse. And the mind serves then to justify the desires of the heart now that 's jesus here 's paul ephesians four eighteen about fallen man in general. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Now, you've got to follow the chain of reasoning there and see what's at the bottom. Darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorance is in them. Where does it all come from? Where does ignorance come from? Where does this darkened understanding come from? It comes from the hardness due to the hardness of their heart. Human irrationality is rooted in human hardness of heart, that is, hardness against God. And so we have a reason, and it is disordered when it comes to its use at the most important points in life. Paul said it numerous ways. Second Corinthians 3.14, the mind is hardened. First Timothy 6.5, the mind is depraved. Romans 1.21, the thinking is futile and darkened and foolish. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So unrighteousness is functioning to cause the mind to suppress truth. We are an adulterous generation. All of us are. We love man-centered error more than Christ-exalting truth. And rational powers are taken captive by this adulterous love. And this is what Jesus exposed when he said, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Your brain is working. You're guilty when you don't use that brain that way to draw right inferences about me. Nevertheless, everywhere in the New Testament, everywhere, we are called to use our minds in the process of Christian conversion and growth in obedience. For example, ten times in the book of Acts, Paul is said to reason with both unbelievers in the synagogue as well as believers in the upper room. He says to the Corinthians, I would rather use my mind to speak five words to instruct you than in 10,000 words in a tongue you cannot understand. Or Ephesians, when you read this, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Reading is a very intellectual task. When you read my book that I'm writing, then you can understand my insight into mysteries, summoning them not to skip their mind or do an end run around their mind. In spite of all that was said about the laming of the mind by the adulterous heart, we are summoned again and again to use the mind. Here's here's a verse that has been most influential in my life. Concerning this, 2 Timothy 2 7. 2 Timothy 2 7 says to Timothy, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. And we fall off the horse on one side or the other. One person saying, yes, call the church to think, engage their minds, use their God-given reason, and they minimize or even neglect that understanding is a free gift of God. Or the other side of the horse... Yes, we need God, we need prayer, we need spiritual anointing and outpouring and revival. And thinking just messes people up. You go away to school and you come home an unbeliever. Therefore, what we need is to yield to the free grace of God, to give understanding. As though Paul were saying that will happen without this. And isn't it? Wonderful that we have in the Bible such a simple, straightforward, clear verse as 2 Timothy 2.7. Think over what I say, Timothy. Why? Because you don't need a spiritual illumination and gift? No. the The, the second clause is a ground clause. People turn it all around. Think over what I say. Because the Lord will give you through that understanding. I remember old Warfield was confronted one time. You remember that story? When somebody said, I'd rather spend ten hours on my knees, or one hour on my knees, I'm gonna we'll get the facts around here, than ten hours o- over books. And Warfield said, What better than ten hours on your knees? over your books. Statements like that can make a big impact on a young seminarian. Think over what I say the Lord will give you. It's not either or. It's both and. The willingness of God to give corresponds to our readiness to receive in and through our thinking over what the Bible says. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding. He will not give it if you don't think about the Bible, and He won't give it if you don't depend on Him to give it and simply depend on your own rational powers in the work on the Bible. So use your mind. The Bible says so. Engage your reasoning. Jesus warned what happens when that doesn't happen in a parable. You know where I am? The first soil in the parable of the soils goes like this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what is sown in his heart. Or the fourth soil... It goes like this. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundred, another sixty, another thirty. So, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, but not the word misunderstood. Jesus said it so plainly. The word lands, it's not understood, devil's got it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word understood, which is why preaching must be lucid and clear and well-argued and well-grounded and compelling. Otherwise, we will come under Jesus' indictment, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So, even though our natural mind is disordered and confused and draws all kinds of wrong inferences to serve the adulterous heart, nevertheless, everywhere in the New Testament we are told to use our minds in the service of spreading the gospel and building people up in the faith. And before I ponder how that can be and why that can be, I want to spend the next section talking about faith. And here, it will be an interesting repetition and perhaps expansion on what Dr. Sproul said about the nature of faith, because that is, in fact, one of the most important things to think about. And I will take a a slightly different turn than he did. Picture this chair here, okay? We'll be there in a minute. The only kind of faith I'm concerned about is saving faith. I'm not interested in the faith of other religions. I'm not interested in the faith of the scientist in his first principles. I'm not interested in the faith of a child in his parents' trustworthiness. I'm only interested in the kind of faith that will receive eternal life. That's the only kind I'm talking about in this message, not general, generic faith. And to get at the nature of that faith, here's the question I'm going to ask. Why is it that the Bible teaches that we are justified by faith alone? Why? Why not by love? Why not by some other virtuous disposition of the regenerate heart? Why is it that the Bible never says that, but rather says we are justified by faith? What is it about faith that makes that so appropriate? And I'm going to quote now J. Gresham Machen. I think he's right here. 1925, what is faith? The true reason why faith is given such an exclusive place by the New Testament so far as the attainment of salvation is concerned over against love and over against everything else in man is that faith means receiving something not doing something or even being something. To say therefore that our faith saves us means that we do not save ourselves, even in the slightest measure, but that God saves us. So, in other words, the reason the Bible is relentless in speaking of justification by faith, not works or any virtue in us, is because it wants to make crystal clear that God decisively saves us outside ourselves. And we receive that. We receive that. And the act of the heart that receives is uniquely faith. Now, I did a talk on Andrew Fuller, the main rope holder for William Carey back in 1793 following after Carey left. And... Fuller said exactly the same thing, and I thought it might be helpful to you to hear somebody a hundred years earlier than Machen say it this way. Thus, it is that justification is ascribed to faith because it is by faith we receive Christ, and thus it is by faith only and not by any other grace. Faith is peculiarly a receiving grace, which none other is. Were we said to be justified by repentance or by love or by any other grace, it would convey to us the idea of something good in us being the consideration on which the blessing was bestowed, but justification by faith conveys no such idea. So what sets faith apart from love and other virtuous dispositions of the heart is that, quote, it is a peculiarly receiving grace. Which is why Ephesians 2 8 says, by grace are you saved through faith. Because grace is God's readiness and disposition and free giving and the corresponding correlative act in us is faith which receives that. That's the dynamic. God is out here and gracious, and we are receiving that in. Now, here's the key question. What does faith receive in order to be saving faith? We're getting near to this chair illustration here. What does faith receive? Receive. My little girl could answer that. She did this morning in devotions. The jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Or John one twelve. to all who did receive him, him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We must receive Christ. It's in receiving Christ that we are united to Christ and His righteousness is counted as ours and a power flows from Him to us for sanctification. However, that's not enough. It's not enough to say that. We must make clear What it means to receive Christ. And the reason we must is because there are so many people who say they have received Christ and believed on Christ who give little or no evidence of any spiritual life. They don't seem to be alive, they are unresponsive to the spiritual beauty of Jesus. It doesn't get any echo. They are unmoved by the glory of Christ. They don't have the spirit of the apostle when he said, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count his all as refuse in order that I might gain Christ. You, you listen and you long and you ache to hear anything approximating that heart in these people who say they have received Christ, and you don't hear it ever. Their spirit is not, it seems, the spirit of the Apostle Paul. So what's the problem? There's several ways to describe the problem. Here's one. They are not receiving Christ for who he really is. That is, they are not receiving him as supremely valuable. They receive him as sin forgiver because they don't like feeling guilty, they love being guilt free. They receive him as rescuer from hell because they love being pain free. They receive Him as healer because they love being disease-free. They receive Him as protector because they love being safe. They receive Him as prosperity giver because they love being wealthy. They receive Him as creator because they love a personal universe. They receive Him as the Lord of history because they love order and purpose, but they don't receive Him as supremely and personally valuable. That is, they don't receive him for who he is. He is more glorious, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying than anything in the universe. They don't prize him or treasure him or cherish him or delight in him. They do not receive him. For what he is. Now stop. The rest of this is not on paper. I'm just going to think with you out loud about the chair. Because I've, I've, I've worked through these kinds of illustrations to try to figure them out. Fiducia says, I trust the chair can hold me. Is it holding you? No, why not? You're not sitting in it. Meaning... Fiducia entrusts itself to the chair, and that's a picture of saving faith. I have no problem with that. That, that is not a wrong way to think. It's just, what if, what if a person sits in the chair because hell is looking at their rear end, <laughs> and, and, and it, it's the best, next best option? And the chair they consider, frankly, worn out, ugly, undesirable, and not a place they'd want to sit very long. And yet, looks like it'll hold me up. In other words, I, I, don't, I am sure that if John Calvin were here, or R.C. Sproul were standing right here beside me, I'd say, am I adding a fourth thing to the three, noticia, census, fiducia, fiducia? Or is what I'm saying in Fiducia? I don't know what they would say. So I'm leaving tomorrow morning, and R.C. Sproul can tell you what he would say. Um, Calvin will have to wait. It doesn't really matter to me whether it's a fourth thing or I'm more more inclined to think that what was meant by Fiducia because, did you notice, the the body... of R.C. Sproul went like this, over here, and then he went right over here, and he said, next thing out of his mouth was, because of this, it's not there anymore, this fiducia, that is why religious affections matter. That's Jonathan Edwards' talk. This is a Jonathan Edwards' sermon. Meaning, you got to love that chair. It's a beautiful chair. I would like to spend eternity talking to that chair and listening to that chair and being loved by that chair. This is not a, a hell escape chair because I'm about to fall into a pit. I must receive the chair as an all satisfying chair. Not, that's just addition. That, don't think that's correction. That's just addition to what we heard. <laughs> and it's what I was going to say. Anyway. Here's another way to say the problem. I'm still working on what saving faith is and trying to clarify it by asking why faith alone justifies, and then clarifying the nature of faith by asking why so many people say they've received Christ and they seem to have no spiritual life. That's where I am. Another way to say it is that many people receive Christ in a way that requires no change in human nature. You don't have to be born again to love being guilt-free You don't have to be born again to love being pain-free or disease-free or safe or wealthy. All natural men love those things. And they'll do whatever they need to do to get them. Say whatever they need to say. Believe whatever they need to believe. If that's what you want and you're told this will get it and it looks plausible, then I'll use that to get it. You don't have to be born again to be driven by what drives the world. But Jesus says you have to be born again to go to heaven. And so that kind of receiving Christ doesn't get you to heaven. The kind of faith that gets you to heaven is the kind that requires a new birth. And embracing Jesus as your supreme treasure requires the new birth. Or as Paul said, a new creation. Or as Ephesians 2 said, being made alive from the dead. Therefore, conclusion about the nature of faith, saving faith is a receiving of Christ. I want to be in tune with these ancient voices, ancient, 200 years, Machen and Fuller and beyond. I want to be in line with, yes, saving faith is a fundamentally, peculiarly receiving activity, and what it does is receive Christ for who He is, namely infinitely glorious, infinitely wonderful, infinitely beautiful, and therefore infinitely valuable, so that the newborn life of faith says, I count everything as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. Where I don't hear that spirit, I'm not sure what I'm dealing with. Jesus I mean, sometimes people stumble over these, these words from Jesus, but if you believe what I just said, these words should not be a problem where Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Or, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and covered it over and out of his joy went and sold everything he had. Wedding ring, his grandfather's clock, his computers, his books, his books. He sold his books. (laughs) In order to have Christ. The infinite glory of Jesus makes him infinitely valuable and infinitely satisfying. Saving faith receives this Christ. Now, don't misread me here. A little sentence of qualification. I do not mean that any of you in this room, nor I, will experience the full measure of joy that comes with beholding infinite glory in this life. I don't mean that... You will ever in this life experience the fullest measure of satisfaction that he deserves from you. What I do say is this. To be born again and to have saving faith is to have received a taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And having tasted, you will know where you are going and what you want to drink all the days of your life, and it will govern what you do with your days and what you pursue. I don't, I have a lot of patience with stumbling saints who fall in and out of sin if they fall out regularly, hating what they did, renewing their resolve to press on in the pursuit that they might gain Christ. So don't hear me perfectionistically when I define faith as a receiving Christ for who he really is, namely infinitely glorious and infinitely wonderful and infinitely beautiful and therefore infinitely valuable. Now we turn finally to the relationship between reason and faith. So what we've seen so far is that the nature of saving faith determines what will be sufficient and reasonable ground to bring it about. The nature of it determines what will be a reasonable and sufficient ground. Now, here I'm filling in a blank for Dr. Sproul. Because he made the case, which I will also make, that apologetics cannot bring about the kind of faith I just described. But it's an indispensable means to that end. Now, there's a gap in that statement. Well, what is then the ground on which that faith rests? If it isn't the function of the reason in apologetics... What is it? Well, he did say more than that, didn't he? I want to tell him, short. He talked about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So we'll come back. But I'm going to add to that. The nature of saving faith demands more than facts. He said that. I say that. Not less. Not less. But more. Why? Because the nature of saving faith is not the receiving of raw facts it is the receiving of Christ as infinitely glorious supremely valuable saving faith says i receive you as my savior i receive you as my lord i receive you as my supreme treasure in life what's the basis of that reception so that it can be called sufficient and reasonable And the answer is that the basis of receiving Christ as infinitely glorious is a sight of the glory of Christ in the gospel. A spiritual apprehension, a spiritual sight of the glory of Christ in the gospel. Human reason does not alone provide that sight, though it must be used to present the gospel, to defend the gospel, argue for the gospel, explain the gospel, proclaim the gospel, illustrate the gospel. But the sight of the glory of Christ in the gospel, the reason does not effect. Therefore, I think Dr. Sproul almost used these words the reason is indispensable in apologetics or in preaching evangelism but not the decisive role in awakening saving faith now one more text to reflect on if you want to turn there with me you can second corinthians chapter 4 verses 4 through 6 this Text is as influential in my thinking on these matters as any text is or could be, probably, in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 is a paradigm-shaping text. So I'll read these three verses. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Now, watch these words carefully. This is why they don't believe. They are unbelievers. They're unbelievers. Why are they unbelievers? They don't see. It keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Not just the facts of Christ. This is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God for, and here comes reason and proclamation and defense, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. And then here comes the decisive act of God. Verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the very thing that we were blind to, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I want to just make... Six brief observations about that text. Number one, verse 4 says that the gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What must be seen to cease being an unbeliever, what must be seen is the glory of God, the supreme excellency, the beauty, the wonder, the glory of Christ in the gospel. Here's the way Jonathan Edwards described this verse. Nothing can be more evident than that a saving belief of the gospel is here spoken of as rising from the minds, being enlightened to behold the divine glory in the things it exhibits. So the decisive, necessary ground of saving faith is the glory of Christ seen in the gospel. Oh, any pastors who are here. If you believe that, every sermon, it would seem, must have something of glory in it. Something of compelling beauty in it. Something of irresistible awakenings of satisfaction. We must speak of the Bible in such a way as to awaken spiritual sight of beauty and glory and irresistible pleasantness. In Christ, so that it doesn't appear foolish and weak anymore. Observation number two. This divine glory is really and objectively there. It's not subjectively added. This is one of the dangers in in construing the testimony of the Holy Spirit this way. And, And Dr. Sproul distanced himself from this. The Holy Spirit, he said, is not another voice telling you another message. And then you go back over here and say, I heard over there that this message means this. That's not the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is the work of taking away blindness. You do not need to take away blindness if something isn't there to see. But if something is there to see and you don't see it, the reason is probably that blindness needs to be taken away. So Edwards argues, argues it's really there. Here's the way he describes it. It is an ineffable, distinguishing evidential excellency in the gospel. It's the difference between those who stumble over the gospel and regard the gospel as foolish and weak and those who are called and see it as the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's the difference? It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. It radiates with glory. What's the difference? The difference is blindness and the removal of blindness. observation number 3 verse 5 makes plain that the sight of the distinguishing evidential excellency doesn't happen in a vision it doesn't happen in a dream it doesn't happen in a whispered whispered word from the holy spirit it happens in the proclamation of christ the lord crucified risen it happens when paul opens his mouth and speaks and the Lord opens the heart of Lydia to give heed to the things that are in the gospel. This is where the brain is so crucial. Of course the brain doesn't create the sight of a blind person. Nothing is more hopeless than thinking that I, by my rational exposition, am going to remove spiritual blindness from unbelievers. But what is eminently rational is that if I don't put Christ up for them to see, when their eyes go open, the Holy Spirit probably won't open their eyes to see Him. If I paint a portrayal of Christ, worthy of Christ, the Holy Spirit who was given to glorify Christ and loves Christ will say, that I want this person to see and rip the veil off their mind our job with our minds is indispensable and glorious even if it is not decisively the final cause of the sight of glory. Fourth observation. This indispensable use of reason in proclaiming the gospel is not the decisive, unshakable ground of saving faith. That is given in verse 6. Here it is. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown. i just stop here. The evangelist in me wants to stop here. My dad died a week ago and he was an evangelist. This is what he wanted me to do. You should ask as I read this verse, has this happened to me? We're not here to play games. Hell and heaven hang in the balance of whether verse 6 has happened to you. So I'll read it carefully. I do not mean that you have to have been taught this vocabulary. You can experience glorious things from God and not have biblical names to put on them. I'm going to give you the names. They're in the verse. But has this happened? The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Remember what R.C. Sproul said? You love Christ with all your heart? No. You love him as much as he deserves? No. You love him at all? Yes. This is the only explanation for that, he said. A mustard seed, a taste, growing Defining what you pursue now, I have tasted the light. The light has shone into my heart. It no longer looks foolish. It no longer looks like a mere ticket out of hell that I would really be bored to spend eternity with. I just want golf. I've heard it called golf, everlasting golf, or the best car, or the swimming pool, or the right figure, finally, or no more bald head, or whatever. Finally, I get my idol. That's not new birth. If the light has happened in your heart, you've seen Christ and you want Him. 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 More of Him. That's observation number four. Two more and we'll be done. Number five. This ground of faith is reasonable. The conviction that flows from it, this sight of the glory... Producing a conviction, this is real, this is true, this is worthy, is a reasonable conviction. How so? Not that it's produced by the rational faculty, but rather, nothing is more reasonable than that saving faith as a receiving of Christ as infinitely glorious should be grounded On seeing him as infinitely glorious in the gospel. That is eminently reasonable. If one must see the ineffable, distinguishing, evidential excellency of Christ in the gospel as the ground, then it is reasonable that one should ground his faith on this. Indeed, you cannot but ground your faith on this when you see it. Finally, number six, why is this so important to stress? Why is this so important to stress? I suppose can I cannot get my father out of my mind, sorry. I suppose one of the reasons I love Jonathan Edwards so much is because he wrote sermons a lot like my dad preached. My dad really, really believed in hell, and he really loved people, and he really loved the cross, and therefore his eyes had an intensity to them that a little boy was almost scared to look into when he was talking about heaven and hell and Christ and faith. Edwards was an evangelist as well as a pastor and a philosopher and a theologian. And you know what he said about what he was doing here, what I'm doing here? He said, the reason I'm approaching the grounding of faith this way and working on it this hard is because if we have to depend on the actions of the reason in managing historical evidences, we will all be subject to probabilities and we will not be able to win the Housatonic Indians. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you to go into the world thinking, it's 80% likely that Jesus is God. It's 80% pretty good. That's worth banking your life on. So I'm I'm gonna close by reading a quote from Edwards to show you what drove him, my dad, me, I hope you... Here's what Edwards wrote. Apologetics for the illiterate 18th century American Indian. Unless man may come to a reasonable, solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it, by a sight of its glory... It is impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough and effectual conviction of it at all. They may, without this, see a great deal of probability in it. It may be reasonable for them to give much credit to what learned men and historians tell them, but to have a conviction so clear and evident and assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with boldness to sell all, confidently and fearlessly to run and venture the loss of all things and of enduring the most exquisite and long-continued torments and to trample the world underfoot and count all that as dung for Christ, the evidence they can have from history cannot be sufficient. I tried so hard in seminary. I did. I tried for years to build, to rebuild my faith on historical arguments. And I believe they were valid. But the more real, live, painful, threatening, discouraging circumstances I ran into, the less they could hold. They weren't the kind of thing that worked. They didn't go deep enough. They didn't persuade powerfully enough. And the only kind of people I'm coming to Orlando to produce is fearless, venturing the loss of all things, ready to endure the worst hardships, trampling the devil underfoot, counting everything as dung for Christ's sake. And when death finally comes, to say, game. It's the only kind of people I want to walk out of this room. So, yes, we must use our minds, exercise your reason, proclaim, explain, confirm the gospel, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Be ready like Paul in prison for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's indispensable. God didn't give us a brain to throw away. That's indispensable. But as we use all our renewed mental powers for Christ, we must pray like little children. Oh God, would you please attend the preaching of your word with the almighty power of the Holy Spirit? Would you grant that just as you once said, let there be light? You would speak into hearts in this room even at this very moment. Let there be light so that the gospel suddenly, beyond all rational explanation, shines as never before with the ineffable divine, evidential excellency of the glory of Christ. And everybody says, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, Father, that's my prayer. That you would be at work now. And even as we sing of your grace, you would make it mighty in our hearts. Open our eyes. Take away the blindness. Lift the veil. Remove the hardness. Purify the corruption that we might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is your very image. In his name I pray, amen.